Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading just one verse this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. These are the words of God. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, as we open and study your word today, we ask that you use it to instruct us, convict us, strengthen, and encourage us. Please bless this time as we seek to grow in our understanding of who you are and who we are to be as your sons and daughters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So I want to start with a question. How many of you were tempted this week? Could be anything, large, small, tempted to anger, bitterness, idolatry, pride, gluttony, whatever. Show of hands, show of hands. Anyone tempted this week? Good, good. Then what I'm going to say should be applicable to just about everyone. If you didn't raise your hand, we'll talk after. Um, but we constantly have to deal with temptation, right? Constantly. It's ever-present and yet different for each one of us. My temptations may not be your temptations, but as varied as they are, it is temptation in all its various forms that results in sin. We have faced temptation in the past, and we'll face it in the future. We have fallen into it in the past. It should be in our hearts to resolve to know victory over it in the future. I don't know about you, but whenever we come to our time of confession on the Lord's Day, I wish I could just come one time and say, Lord, I had a great week. I'm, I, I've got nothing. Sorry. But it's never the case. Always something to confess. And it's also rather wearisome when you come and every week it's the same thing, right? Same list of stuff. God, please forgive me again. Sometimes our progress is almost imperceptible. Confession is a time for us to look back and acknowledge our sin and ask for forgiveness. But I think it's also time for us to say, the next time I'm here, God, please give me victory over some of these same things that I'm bringing to you every week. I want some victory and some triumph over those besetting sins. So it's a time for us to recommit our lives of obedience to Christ and refocus to live in a way that is honoring to God. And I know a lot of times you say, but is, that, is it really possible? I mean, really. I mean, temptation seems to be constant seems to be overwhelming. It, is it, in fact, possible to be triumphant? Doesn't it seem like Satan has some sophisticated weaponry and methodology that just transcends our ability to deal with it? Isn't he more powerful than we are? Aren't we sometimes confronted with temptations that are so subtle that we don't even recognize them? We don't even see them. And isn't Satan and his his system of operation in the world and the flesh so subtle and devious and deceitful that sometimes we're tempted before we even know it comes. And furthermore, like, aren't our hearts just so wicked and deceitful and even, you know, we can't even guard against our own hearts? And, and sometimes we even kid ourselves that we're more righteous than we are when it's, that's in fact sinful as well. How can we possibly be encouraged in this matter of dealing with sin when it seems to us to be so deceptive, so super powerful, and so orchestrated by the enemy of our souls. And we seem so vulnerable because of our flesh and because of the deceptiveness of our own hearts. Is it possible for us to be triumphant? Sometimes it seems hopeless. 
but I think we can answer that question. And in fact, I think we can answer all those questions out of this one verse. And just to read 1 Corinthians 10, 13 again, and it's a familiar text and one that really should come as a tremendous encouragement to all of us as we, as we contemplate our future in desiring triumphant holy living. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Incredibly encouraging verse. The promise is thrilling. No temptation is overpowering. Satan is not so powerful. Satanic operations are not so subtle. The flesh is not so weak. The human heart is not so deceived that we are necessarily a victim of temptation. And so in going through this verse, there are some principles that rise to the top. And I think if we can wrap our heads around them, we can understand the path to our victory. First of all, we must understand the means of temptation. So notice the verse, no temptation has overtaken you. So what does that mean? Well, very simply stated, temptation wants to overtake you. It wants to dominate you. It wants to take control of you. Now, we can understand this process by looking at the word temptation. It doesn't tell us much in English. In, in Greek, it tells us a lot. It can be translated test as well as temptation. Tests and temptations, two sides of the same thing. Life is full of tests. Every test, every trial is a potential temptation. And this is the way, this is the way I want us to think about it. Temptation is an inward solicitation resulting from an outward test. Right? Life is full of tests. You can have tests in your life that look different than anyone else. Could be financial stress, financial setback. It could be um, a physical trial. It could be an, an, a family trial, family test. So how, do you, how does that test, though, then move to temptation? Right? So say it's a personal disappointment. You had expectation of someone they didn't perform. You either accept that with a trusting heart love them in spite of it, or you begin to feel animosity and bitterness, and now you're dealing with temptation, right? Could be unkindness, mistreatment, injustice, could be illness, right? Could be the test of an unexpected disaster, test of, a test of a death of someone you love, test of thwarted plans. Um, it could be the test of facing a problem with no acceptable solution. Could be the test of a person or experience that gives you an opportunity to do evil. These are the tests that make up our lives, and when they go inside, then they begin to solicit evil and become temptations. So turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, for a very lucid explanation of this internal processing. And this is, this is I think, why a lot of people love going to James uh, for some of the stuff, because he just kind of, like, you can look at those other verses, and then you come to James like, oh, okay, I see how that works, right? James chapter 1, verse 13, James talks about the fact that God is not involved in tempting anyone. Right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? So that's important. God doesn't bring about that inward solicitation to do evil in anyone's life. Right? He doesn't do that. But go back to verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various tests, various trials. Right? Same word. Because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So God sends the tests. God sends the tests, but not the temptations. God will bring the outward test to produce patience, endurance, spiritual maturity, a lot of the gifts that should be flowing out of you, 
And first, Peter 5 says that after you have suffered a little while, the Lord will make you perfect, right? And that's, that's bringing those fruits of the Spirit forth. So God allows the tests of life to make us strong, but he never brings them to the inward solicitation to do evil. You say, well, how does that happen? Well, verse 14, James chapter 1, God doesn't tempt, verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by, by what? by his own lust, his own desire. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Brings forth death. Don't you be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good, perfect gift is from above. That's all God ever sends, right? God will bring the test for spiritual maturity and perfection. It's your own desires, what you desire to do that begins to produce that solicitation to do evil. And so I think our victory then begins with that understanding, the means by which temptation comes. It comes through the trials, tests, disappointments of life. So we simply remind you that when things aren't going the way you want them in life and you're facing a test, you have to be aware this is the way temptation comes. So your antenna should have gone up. Alarms should be going off, red flashing lights, all those sorts of things. So there's a second thing you must understand that comes out of this verse too. If we're going to experience the triumph that this verse promises even against Satan and his kingdom and the weakness of our human flesh, we have to understand the nature of temptation. Verse 13, back in 1 Corinthians, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. In a word, temptation to its very nature is human. It's not supernatural. It's not so powerful, so unique that we have no way to deal with it. Temptation is common to man. And what this phrase really has to say is, is that it is not so demonic or powerful that we are helpless victims. It's the same for all of us. The temptations that come to me, the temptations that come to you, the temptations that come to someone in power or someone in poverty are the same. It's the same for all of us. We may have our peculiar besetting sins, things that we are particularly given to, we have our susceptibilities to certain temptations over and against other ones. But we're all getting hit with what is common to all of us. It's just normal for our fallen humanists to have to deal with these things. That's part of being human, is we have to deal with temptations. It's another way of saying that the strength of temptation is limited by God. It's just what's common to man. And he created us in a way where this is common. Jesus experienced this. In Hebrews, it tells us he was tempted in all points, just as we are. In his enduring temptation, he suffered the temptations that are common to man. And so the temptations that came, the temptations in our nature are, in, when Jesus came in the flesh, he had to deal with those common temptations, the same ones we all have to. That's why he is such a faithful and merciful high priest, right? Because we can go to him and he understands. Galatians 6.1 reminds us that when your brother is overtaken in a fault, restore him in love, considering yourself, lest you also what? Lest you also be tempted. What your brother has gone through could have easily have happened to you because temptation is common to all of us. So the means by which temptation comes to us generally is through the tests and trials of life. The nature of temptation is not some kind of supernatural power that's beyond us. It's simply coming on a common level. It's human. It's what everyone experiences. And third, in this verse, 
we have to understand the extent of temptation. And this really follows closely with that last point. We must understand the extent. And, and uh, Paul says, God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, beyond your ability. God knows you, each of you, as an individual. He has planned your life to be secure in Christ eternally. Right? He will not lose any that are his. Therefore, he will never allow you to go into any kind of temptation, which is more than you at any given point in your spiritual life can handle. Really? The Lord never allows us at the point of our spiritual development to go through any temptation that is beyond our ability to deal with. And not deal with at a human level, but deal with with him. He puts limits on the extent of our temptation. There's a ceiling. There's a cap. There's a lid on what he will allow in the life of one that is his own. And God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So, again, recap. Temptation comes to us through the tests and trials of life. The nature of temptation is what everyone else experiences, and God limits the extent what each one of us can be tempted. And so those three things alone are encouraging, right? God has this in his hands. Should give us the confidence to deal with any test and any trial. But wait, there's more. There's a final point, and this is, this is what I really want to focus on this morning. There is a way out, and we have to understand the way out. We have to understand the way out of temptation. He says that with the temptation, God will always provide the way of escape. There's always a path to victory, always. The Greek word says there's literally an exit. There's always an escape hatch. There's always a parachute. There's always a way out. So what is it? Well, it tells us right at the end there. He says, God will with temptation provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Did you hear that? He wants us to be able to endure it. The way of escaping temptation is to go through it. The way to not have a test or a trial turn into a temptation is to go through it. Escape doesn't mean avoid. Exit does not mean turn around and go back. The exit is on the far side. You have to go through. So the way out of temptation is endure it as a trial. Never let it become a solicitation to sin, which then affects that sinful response. The way out is to take it as a test and a trial and not internalize it so it begins to solicit sin. So you've been wronged. So you've been falsely accused. So you've been maligned, treated unkindly, unjustly. Accept it with joy. You will endure it. That's the way of escape. So someone promised you something and didn't fulfill it. You had tied some of your greatest expectations to that promise. Accept it. Understand it. Acknowledge it as a trial that's intended to strengthen your faith. And the way out is through it sustaining it as a test, never letting it be turned into a temptation that you may be able to bear it or endure. The Greek word for endure means literally to get under and carry it. Get under it and carry it. Usually we're looking for a quick in, easy route, but the only way out is to get under it and carry it and go through. You remain under it, but you endure it as a test with the view that God is using this to bring about spiritual maturity. So, I want to briefly talk about two ways of escape, two ways for us to escape the temptation, endure the test, and those two are drawing near and running away. 
drawing near and running away. And actually, the Bible gives us specific, specific instruction and commands on how to draw near and how and when to run away and the reasons and benefits of both. So let's look at those quickly. Drawing near, the Bible repeatedly tells us to come to God and God will reciprocate. And we can do this because of Jesus, right? We have access to the Father through our elder brother, Jesus. Amazing in itself that we have access to Almighty God, creator of the universe, but we're told to draw near to him, get close. So Hebrews 10, therefore, brothers, since we have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so in these verses, there's one main straightforward command, draw near. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants you to do. Draw near, draw near to God. And when you go through the verses, there's really only one exhortation in there. Once you pull away all the, the defining phrases and clauses and everything else, and it really is draw near. Since therefore we have confidence to enter the holy place, all that, all that draw near. And so that's what, the, that's what the writer has for us. One simple, deep, holy, happy, seemingly impossible goal for us, his readers, Draw near. Draw near to what? Well, it's not hard to find out since drawing near is a favorite theme of the writer of Hebrews. So three other occurrences in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with the confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Right, so we draw near to the throne of grace so then when we need something, we are near to God. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? We're near to God. Jesus is there making intercession for us. When we are near, we go to Christ. He makes intercession for us, drawing near to God. He's able to save us forever. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who draws near to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. He is a rewarder of those who seek him. You draw near to him, there are rewards to that. And as we'll see, some of those rewards are the ability to stand during times of test and trial. So the great passion of the writer of Hebrews is that we draw near to God, that we come to his throne to find all the help we need, that we come to him confident that he will reward us with all that is for us in Jesus. And that's what he means here in Hebrews 10. So the one command... The one exhortation is draw near. So what does drawing near to God, though, do for us? And so there's a lot of other pastors in Scripture that expand on that. But three quick things. Drawing near to God, well, God then draws near to us. And we have a solid anchor. And he gives us endurance. James 4, 7 through 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When we draw near to God, not only does he draw near to us, as James says here, but then we can resist the devil, endure the test, and the devil will flee. I mean, what could be better? That's what Adam should have done, right? Resisted the devil, and the devil would have fled. 
And that's what James is exhorting us to do. We're too much like Adam. And that's why James here says what he does. Hebrews 6, 18 through 20, we have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters in the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Right? We flee to God, right? Flee for refuge, and we have that as a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul. A steadfast anchor for the soul. We are anchored to God Almighty, solid, with a hope based on Jesus. A hope based on not we can see or what we're in the middle of, what the test and the trial is bringing to us, but no, when we're near to God, we have this anchor of God, which is far beyond what we can see or understand, all based on the finished work of Jesus. Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And so we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Drawing near to God bears fruit. It bears fruit in a variety of ways. Not going to go through the fruits of the Spirit this morning. But increases the knowledge of God, strengthens you with all power. And it, as, as Paul says here, for what? All endurance. To be able to bear up under the tests and the trials. Drawing near to God gives you that power to endure. You say, fine, that's great, I get it. How do I do that? Well, you know what the keys are. You know what they are. And I'm only going to briefly mention them again. The first is meditating on the word. We have the Bible reading challenge, right, that started a week ago. Why do we, why do we encourage folks to be in the Bible every day? Well, because meditating on the word is one of those key ways to draw near to God. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, starting in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I mean, it only said it a half a dozen times in there, right? But verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin. When the test comes, you turn to the word of God. That storehouse of scripture that you have, right? Which is why you need to be in it regularly. You don't listen to your own lusts. You don't listen to the arguments that your heart will conjure up. I really want to do it this way. I really want to do this. I want to go chase this. When the test comes, you turn to the word of God. You listen to that. But you can't stop and say, when, when it comes, like, oh, wait, this is a test. Where's my Bible? What's a good verse for this? Oh, this is the Bible without the concordance. How do I, you know, that's not, that's not how it works. The word has to be in your heart, pushing out the other desires, pushing out those other thoughts as they come up. Secondly, you pray. You pray what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver me. You turn to God and you cry out to him to keep this test from becoming a temptation. You don't have to be happy with the test. Tests and trials aren't always comfortable. 
but you cry out to God and you go, okay, I understand this is a test. Help me to endure without this becoming a temptation to sin. But here's the thing again. Unless you already have that close, personal, conversational relationship with God, daily, minute by minute, constant, as Paul says, be constant in prayer, unless you have that, when the test comes, that's not going to be your first thought. You might say, well, I can, I'll stand here with the sinners for a little bit. I can deal with it. It'll be okay. No, your first thought should be, I need to take this to God in prayer so that he can help me to endure. Otherwise, alarms should be going off. Third thing, the shield of faith, right? It means to trust God no matter how the fiery darts may be coming at you, understanding that God has a purpose and trusting God for that purpose. We're not going to always understand the purpose as the test or the trial comes. We're just not. And sometimes that's a temptation. Temptation is sin, to not trust that God has good things, that God has purpose in it for you. Fourth, focus on Christ. He endured every temptation to the maximum. You can turn to him and say, hey, my faithful high priest, you know what I'm going through. Strengthen me for this. Strengthen me that I can bear up under this and endure. I'm not going to go through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, but his responses to Satan cover all these things, right? They do. So all these things, we know these things, right? When the temptation comes, turn to the word. When the test comes, turn to the Lord in prayer. When the test comes, retain your faith in God's purposes through the test. When the test comes, look to Christ, the faithful high priest, who will nurture you through this test. There's no test that's more than we can bear. When we fall and the test becomes a temptation and the temptation becomes a sin, it's not that we're victims. It's not that it was too much. It's that we made sin-filled choices, right? We followed the desires of our own heart, as James said. We chose not to turn to the word of God, but rather to listen to our own hearts, our own desires, and our own lust then enticed us. We chose not to cry out to God. We 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 didn't ask him to lead us away. We asked him to take this trial from us, deliver us from evil and not let it turn into a temptation, but rather we pursued the evil because we wanted the desires of our flesh to be fulfilled. We failed to trust that God has a divine purpose in the test, and we could take the test not for its own sake, but for what it yields. We want something immediate. We want the test or the trial to be done and off of us, but, but God sometimes needs to take us through something so that we can be perfected so that he can bring forth fruit in us. Now, sometimes we are near to God, right? Regular in the word, regular in prayer. And the spirit dwells in us, alerts us to a danger. And the best thing you can do is flee. Just plain old run away. Matthew Henry says, in times of imminent peril and danger, it's not only lawful, but our duty to seek our own preservation by all good and honest means. And if God opens a door of escape, we ought to make our escape. Otherwise, we do not trust God, but tempt him. There may be a time when even those that are in Judea, where God is known and his name is great, must flee to the mountains. And while we only go out of the way of danger, not out of the way of duty, we may trust God to provide a dwelling for his outcasts. In times of public calamity, when it is manifest that we cannot be serviceable at home and may be safe abroad, providence calls us to make our escape. He that flees may fight again. So Matthew Henry is talking here about Matthew chapter 24, 
uh, where Jesus tells his disciples that when they see certain signs, they just need to head for the hills. Like, don't grab your stuff, just run. I don't know how many of you are in Snohomish County and got fire alerts yesterday. We got one that said, leave now, right? Don't take your stuff, just go. That's what, that's what Jesus was telling the people in Matthew 24, just go. Another obvious example is David. David lived a pretty exciting life. He had to flee repeatedly from different things, right? Fred from Saul, Fred from Jerusalem to escape Absalom, and that was wisdom. And God had reasons for, for David fleeing, and it preserved David for the work God had for him. Most famous example, Jesus' family. Jesus' family ran away, went to Egypt. The angel of the Lord told them to run away. Matthew 2.13, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Jesus had important things to do later and needed to get out of there. So I would take, I, I would argue, we don't take the admonition of scripture to flee flee from sin, to run away from sin seriously enough, in a real physical sense. Like we spiritualize that, and like, okay, I just, it means I don't need to pay attention to this. I shouldn't be paying attention to this. No, we don't run away enough. Running away, it's often seen as cowardly, like, oh, I shouldn't be running away from things. But I think, I think the reason there's so many people caught in habitual sins is because they don't just physically get up and get out of there. Here's what I mean. So it, a lot of scripture talks about our Christian walk, which is why I refer to it as a Christian walk, right? We have all these references to paths and other things throughout Scripture, which I don't think are all just symbolic, right? A lot of them are. We talk about paths, a lot of that. But I think, you know, in the Psalms, right, you've made known to me the path of life, okay? My steps have held fast to your paths, leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Okay, great. A lot of symbolism there. Proverbs has 23 references to paths as well. Here we get crooked paths, where people lie in wait along the paths. We're on a path. We really are. And we're walking, and we're walking through life. We move through life every day and encounter people and situations that we need to deal with in a real physical way. There really are dark alleys we should not go down. There really are people we need to avoid. Psalm 1.1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. When your Christian walk veers off the straight and narrow path, and you start walking in the counsel of the wicked, and then you end up standing in the way of sinners, you notice, notice how this progression, right? So you're walking, and then you stop and you stand, and pretty soon you're just sitting in the seat of scoffers, Right? So when you find yourself tempted to walk in the counsel wicked or the test has started to seep in, sometimes the best thing you can do is get out of there. Why? Because it is a matter of life and death. Just like David faced, just like Jesus faced, just like the Jews in Jerusalem faced. Do you feel temptation is a real matter of actual physical life and death? I mean, or is it all just spiritual? Is it all just metaphor? When discussing temptation, we can't ignore the fact that this is a real battle we are in. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but we do fight in a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle can have physical consequences. Those physical consequences 
can be quite dangerous. And the Bible gives us examples of specific temptations that are so dangerous that we're told to physically flee. First is sexual morality. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God in your body. Sexual sin is killing us. Killing our culture, killing our families, killing the church. The pervasiveness of pornography, sexual perversions all around us is overwhelming. The immoral culture is insidious and is luring many in. And so how does Paul tell us to respond to that? Run away. Don't walk. Run. It's dangerous. Our best example of this, Joseph, in the Old Testament from Genesis 39. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He just ran away. It was too dangerous. It's not that he was scared of her. Think of all the things that that guy endured. Joseph was a tough guy. But Joseph also knew when the temptation gets really strong, and reaches out to grab you, you have to flee. You have to run away. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lusts. Those lusts and desires, they, can, they come, and they're physical, and they're real, and it says, run away. Don't hang around to see what will happen. Don't start standing around with sinners. Run away. It's a test, and it's okay to bolt. So what will happen if you don't? And this is where... I think we can understand more of the danger. Proverbs 7 tells us what will happen if you don't. Verse 13, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I perfume my bed. Come, let's take our fill of love till morning. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. Then verse 22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Cost him his life. Serious danger, like fires, active volcanoes, oncoming traffic, snakes. We're supposed to flee from things that can kill us. We really are. And sexual immorality can kill you. The end of Proverbs 7, let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Danger, danger, flee, run away. Physically move your feet in the opposite direction. When you're tempted to a sin, get out of that place. But it's not just sexual sin. Anything we lift higher than God in our mind is just as dangerous 
physically dangerous. Our opening verse, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 13. But then next verse, right after. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee. Are you worshiping something other than God? Career, money, friends, hobbies? You think putting something ahead of God isn't dangerous? The examples in the Bible are too numerous. Start with the golden calf. 3,000 died for worshiping that one. There's more. Prophets of Baal, after deciding to have a contest with God and Elijah, 450 slaughtered after they lost that one. Whole nations. First Kings. I want to read this. First Kings, sorry, Second Kings 17. You can turn there if you want. Second Kings 17, starting in verse 6. Remember, these are Israelites, right? These are God's chosen people. Listen to how idolatry goes for them. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and ashram on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. They should have seen this coming, right? And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they burned their sons and daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them in the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. Any wonder that Paul gives us an admonition to flee from idolatry? It doesn't end well when you worship something or someone in the place of the one true God. One last quick thing Paul tells Timothy to run away from. 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But what things is he supposed to flee? Back in verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Flee from the love of money. 
storing up riches on earth just to have more stuff. God's people should not be setting their hearts on the things of this world. It's dangerous. So I really do want us to think about fleeing, really fleeing, running away, whether it's the temptations of money or sexual morality or worshiping anything that takes our eyes off God. There needs to be movement, physical movement, away from those things. Now, some might hear this and say, well, then I'll just run away. I'll just run away from God. That's what I'll do. I want to chase my desires. I don't want to listen to God. It's a whole big list of do's and don'ts. You'd say I'm going to have trials. I don't want that. I'm just, I'm out of here. Beware. Adam and Eve tried to hide. How did that go? Jonah tried to run away. That didn't go well either. God will bring his judgment. Then you end up running like the kid who knows he's due for a spanking. Right? And Isaiah the prophet tells what happens to those who try to flee from the judgment of God. When there's discipline to come, Isaiah 24, He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in a snare. Right? It's, almost, it's, it's the old movie trope, right? Someone's running from something, the serial killer or whatever, and they trip and they fall, you know, and they look back. That's what, that, that's not a movie thing. That's, that's right here. He'll fall into the pit, and he climbs out of the pit, he's going to get caught in a snare. Person running from a dinosaur, right? Always falls, always trips and falls. But if you draw near to God and use wisdom in knowing when to run away, then Proverbs 3 will describe you. Right? My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely, and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes, because you're not walking with them, right? For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Right? Walking with the Lord, drawing near to God, your foot won't get caught in the snare because you won't be running. The devil wants us to believe the lies, right? He wants us to believe the lies, but scripture tells us the truth. Devil whispers, God is stingy. Psalm 84.11 tells us he's good. The devil tells us sinful pleasures are filling and fulfilling. Hebrews 11.25 tells us they're fleeting. The devil tells us this sin is private. No one will know. Psalm 51 tells us that God sees all. Satan says sexual sin is harmless. First Thessalonians says no, it affects others. Satan says it'll be, an easy, to, it'll be easy to turn back. And Hebrews 3.13 says no. It starts to harden your heart. The devil whispers you're defined by your sin. You will always be defined by that sin. Scripture tells us you're not. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do not be, de be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Such were some of us. Such were some of us. But we were washed. We were sanctified. We were justified by the blood of Jesus. Giving into temptation may temporarily offer contentment, but it will never leave us with the fullness we find in Christ. 
Temptation will always leave us empty and hungry for more. That's what the devil knows, and that's what he's not telling you. These deceptions foster temptation. Temptation looks good, not good for us. Acknowledging the lie helps us turn from temptation back to the truth. Acknowledging that that's a lie. It's not fulfilling. See the test for what it is, something to strengthen and perfect you. Run from the enticement, endure the test, be faithful, find the exit. God is truly the only one who can satisfy the soul. God will always be better. Always. Every good gift comes from him. He was better in the garden. He was better when the Israelites chose a golden calf to worship. He is better than more money. He is better than fame, pride, greed, gossip, sexual immorality, social media, anything else we can add to the list. God is better. And he has proven himself to be time and time again. Sin and idols have proven themselves to fail us again and again. And yet we keep going back. And you'll be tested again and again. So draw near to him. Flee from temptation. Those are the ways of escape. So when you encounter a test, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe I'll just walk for a little while. No, remember this. Final verse, Psalm 107.9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Amen. Let's pray.